Father, we're thankful for um, the Lord's Day. We're thankful for the Sabbath. We're thankful for the opportunity to have one day set apart for rest and for worship. Um, Lord, um, on this day, as we gather as your people, we pray that your spirit would dwell with us even as we prepare for worship uh, by studying your word again now um, together. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So today we will be... um, concluding our study of the Epistle of James, uh, that's the plan at least, um, that we began last spring. And just to give you a a sort of sense for what we're going to do starting next week with Adult Sunday School, um, next week in here I will be beginning a a class that will be an introduction to um, CPC, um, our uh, core values, um, information and and thoughts about our church in terms of um, you know, some context for our history, but also largely a sense for, um, from my perspective as the pastor here, what, what are we about? What are we doing? Um, why do we do things the way that we do? Why do we worship the way that we do? Um, all of those kinds of things. Um, so we're going to um, be talking about that in here um, for six weeks, and then um, uh, Elder Mike Venzel will be leading a class on medieval um, theology um, upstairs, and so that'll be taking place where Patrick is medieval theology. He'll be looking at um, six different medieval theologians and, and sort of talking about why you should care about medieval church history. Um, often we focus on um, you know, either Reformation or modern church history, um, um, but rarely medieval church history. So Mike's got some expertise in that area, so he's going to help us out and give us some thoughts about those things. So, so starting next week in here, um, CPC, uh, Core Values and Introduction, um, to sort of the philosophy and ministry of our church and, and who we are as a church. And then upstairs, um, Mike will be teaching on medieval theology. And that'll last for six weeks, and then we'll, we'll start a new um, section of, of adult Sunday school classes. Okay, so today we are concluding um, James's words um, on, in his epistle. And we got um, last week pretty much up to Uh, verse 11. So I'm just going to start. Remember, just a little review here. Remember the beginning of chapter 5. I argued that James here is is, um, joining in with Jesus and with the prophets generally and talking about the judgment and destruction that's going to come upon Jerusalem. Um, Those um, wealthy um, Jewish leaders who, um, who are holding back the wages of the laborers in their fields, who are the um, the apostles and those who are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, they are being um, um, prevented from fully doing that, um, from proclaiming that good news by the persecution and the opposition of these um, Jewish leaders. And um, James is prophesying judgment on them. He says, uh, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and mer- murdered the righteous person, that is, the Lord Jesus. He does not resist you. Um, So he's prophesying this judgment, and then his application of that prophecy um, to his readers is to be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers. And I think the way that we know that the audience for verses 5, 1 through 6, and then 5, 7 and following are different is um, if James had been prophesying judgment against his readers, his obviously his application, as it is everywhere else in the Old Testament when people receive a prophecy of judgment, would have been to repent, to turn away from your sin, to do something different so that God's judgment will not come upon you. Now, this is prophecy of judgment that will come upon others, upon those who are persecuting uh, these Christian readers that James writes to. 
And his application for them, therefore, is to be patient, to be patient and wait until the coming of the Lord, i.e., the judgment that I've just promised you. He says, be like a farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Again, that judgment that the Lord is going to bring, that vindication that the Lord is going to bring when he comes, the Lord Jesus, um, as he establishes them by judging um, uh, Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It is imminent, this judgment. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And of course, this connects back to chapter 1. Remember, this is one of the, the primary things that James is talking about in this um, in his, in his letter is the blessedness of being steadfast. In James 1, 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Um, so James is reiterating this beatitude that he's written for his epistle, which is the blessedness of remaining steadfast, of remaining patient. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, he says. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. Job was steadfast in his suffering and his persecution, and he was delivered and vindicated by the Lord. Um, How the Lord is compassionate and merciful, James says. And that concludes what we looked at last week. Any questions about that section of this epistle before we work towards the end today? Let's look first then at, at verse 12. I think verse 12 is interesting. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I want to, us to look at it briefly. So after he's got done, James has got done saying, be steadfast, be patient because of this judgment that's coming. Um, be careful as you deal with one another. Um, don't grumble against one another. And then he says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What is James doing there? Why does he emphasize this at this point in his epistle? Do not make foolish oaths, we might say, rash promises. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. James here, of course, is echoing the teaching of Jesus, right? Jesus says something similar in his ministry. Any thoughts? I should say here, I don't think, and our, our Reformed tradition um, doesn't hold that this is an absolute prohibition of any promises or vows of any kind. We think there are appropriate vows that should be made, uh, for example, in marriage or uh, when you join a church or when you're ordained, if that's something you're called to. Um, perhaps if you are going to serve in the military, you take a vow um, uh, to support the Constitution, uphold it. Um, so there are, there are um, uh, reasonable and, and vows that are okay to make. But James here is pushing back against something. I think one of the things he may be pushing back here is against the danger of making um, Uh, false promises or or rash promises, especially ones connected with violence. 
Part of the reasons that I think this is because you see that this is something that people would do. Remember in uh, the book of Acts, as Paul has come back to Jerusalem, um, um, we're, we're told that, that a number of Jews, when they heard that Paul was coming back and falling into their hands, so to speak, because they so desperately wanted to kill him, made an oath. Anybody remember the oath that these Jewish men made together about Paul? They would not eat or drink until he was killed, right? And then they had this plan um, uh, where they would you know, ambush Paul um, and you know, leap out of him suddenly and, and kill him um, before he had a chance um, to, to come back into Jerusalem. And he was prevented in this. Word got out, right? The word got to the centurion. The centurion realized that these Jewish men were going to kill Paul, and so he took him into his custody and protected Paul from being killed, which eventually led to Paul appealing to Caesar and going before Felix and Agrippa and eventually getting on a boat and going to Rome. Right? Does this all sound familiar? Now think about those guys. What was their vow? Not going to eat or drink until Paul dies. <laughs> now, I mean, Paul didn't die for a long time. He did die eventually, but it, it would not be for uh, uh, many months and probably, um, probably years, we think, um, from the historical record uh, before Paul would eventually be killed. Obviously, those men either themselves died or they broke their oath. Um, and I think that this may be the kind of thing that James is talking about here. You had this um, practice in um, the ancient world at this time where, where men would take oaths together um, to perpetrate some kind of violence or some kind of end um, that they would all work together um, to fulfill. And I think that what James here may be saying, just to fit with the, you know, this idea of resisting um, worldly passions, resisting uh, way of violence and acquiring power in that way that he may be here saying, um, don't, uh, don't go fall into that trap. Don't make promises that you can't keep. Um, don't make vows. Um, allow the Lord to protect you, those kinds of things. I think it also fits with the humility that we saw earlier at the end of chapter 4, this idea of um, you do not yet know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Right. Be very careful at making uh, absolute promise predictions and promises like I will go to such and such town next year and make such and such profit, that whole thing. I think it fits with those kinds of things. Um, something to think about and meditate on, but it's just, I just want to put that before you. All right, let me, let me, the really want to focus here today is, is on this last section here, um, 13 through 18 and then 19 and 20. Let me read 13 through 18. I think it's really an interesting passage, especially in the context of what James is doing in this section of the letter. James says, is anyone among you suffering? The question, the answer of that, of course, is yes. James knows they're suffering. He's been talking about it the entire letter. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sin to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. 
Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Um, I think this section is really interesting um, in comparison, in contrast to um, 12. Uh, if 12 is talking about this sort of conspiracy to, or this, this men working together to establish certain things, to do certain things, and Paul is saying, don't do that. What is he saying instead? What is the action that Paul is prescribing for these Christians as they are called to be patient and remain steadfast? To pray, right? That's the action that James sees as, as central to their Christian witness, central to their uh, Christian life at this point, at this stage. It is the action of prayer. It is the action of prayer. It's really interesting, I think, um, that he emphasizes that. It really um, challenges, I think, some of our assumptions about what actual power is, um, what accomplishes the things that we want. Remember, James says, um, you want what you do not have, and so you kill, you murder, um, you, you desire and don't have things, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is, is speaking to that fundamental part of the human existence, which is that we want things that we do not have. We covet things that we cannot obtain. So what do we do about it? What do we do, especially with those good desires? There are some things we, that are good for us that we, that we should desire that we don't have. And James is saying, instead of um, trying to establish the things that you want um, through your own hands, through your own power, um, uh, instead, be patient and ask. James says, you do not ask earlier because you do not have, right? And here he instructs them about asking so they will receive. Instead of trying to make the kingdom of God come, the righteousness that God requires through their own power, um, he's, asked, he's telling them to, to ask God to bring it, ask God to bring these things about. That's, I think, sort of the meta uh, point of this section here, um, this focus on prayer at the end of the epistle. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think it's interesting. I think he is um, he's giving them some things to pray for, right? He's saying, if if anyone you're suffering, let him praise. Anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Sing praise, of course, is another form of prayer. Um, that's what we do on Sunday mornings when we sing hymns. We're all praying together in a particular kind of way, um, not only petitioning God but often adoring Him, singing His praises. It's a form of prayer. Is anyone letting among you sick? So I think, I think that James here is directing their prayers in a particular way, um, in particular circumstances, away from um, the objects of their worldly passions and toward spirit, spiritual wisdom, by which we mean the Holy Spirit um, at work and giving them wisdom, what to ask for. Yeah, I think that's probably, yeah, Kim. Mm-hmm. It is. Prayer is a deep act of dependence, right? Um, what good does prayer do, right? That's, that's the argument someone might make, you know. And you, you see this sometimes, right, when there are times of national crisis and 
um, those kinds of things. And there's this idea that um, that that prayer is not um, a valid response to evil or to things. I'm not, and I'm not saying that prayer is the only valid response um, to evil, um, but it is a valid response to evil, right? If we believe what we say we do in terms of the sovereignty of God and the way that He wants us. Um, to enter in and to ask him to do things on our behalf and for the world. Um, certainly prayer is a fundamental response um, to evil in that way. And I think that's what James is urging his disciples here. And this is good for us to reflect upon, I think. Um, just what, what does it mean for us in this day and age to follow Jesus, to be patient, um, to be steadfast, to await the, the judgment Lord, whether that's a judgment on the final day um, or that's a judgment just that the Lord will bring in history um, to vindicate his people, protect his people. Um, I think James here gives us some really practical advice about what it means to be patient, how we're going to be steadfast, and that is to depend on the Lord in prayer, um, to have that kind of dependence upon him. I also want to think about... um, this particular text here is anyone among you sick let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord anointing him with oil in the name of the lord what is going on here um james and i'm not sorry james mark the only other place we see anointing with oil referred to in the scriptures is in mark 6 13. Um, at least anointing with oil for prayer for healing in this way, rather. We see anointing with oil, of course, elsewhere in the Scriptures for other reasons. In Mark 6, when Jesus sends out his disciples, the twelve, and gives them authority over unclean spirits and to heal, um, we're told that in verse 13, And they, that is the twelve, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So it seems as though this is a practice that originated with Jesus himself. Um, It it was something that he um, instructed his disciples to do, the twelve to do on his behalf, um, even as they went out in his name with his authority and brought healing um, to the men and women um, whom they met. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Um, I want to just think about anointing with oil. Why, why, um, let's just, before I read some other texts, let's just think about that for a moment. Why, Why oil? What is, the, what is the importance of oil in terms of um, uh, healing, this connection between oil and healing? I want to I argue, first of all, that I don't think that, it's, that James here um, is instructing his readers to use oil when the, when the elders come uh, to pray for those who are sick because of some medicinal value um, that was perceived, oil was perceived to have. That's one theory that people, when they read James, said, well, well James must have thought that oil made people get better Um, when they were sick, and so that's why he told um, these Christian readers to anoint with oil. Um, So it would help the prayer by by bringing some medicinal help to their sickness. Um, Of course, we know that um, uh, that's not true, right? Oil doesn't heal. um, (laughs) (laughs) Even those who uh, are persuaded by some Positive effects of oil, I don't think would argue that oil heals. Um, if, if, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, then you can correct me. <laughs> but I don't think any of us would. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so that so that's yeah, so Psalm 23 would be a place where you see you anoint my head with oil, right? There's a connection. So if it's not medicinal, what 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 is what is potentially why would you want to anoint someone with oil? Um, why would Jesus instruct that? Why would James instruct that? I think that is a very interesting aspect, and this is, um, you know, I've anointed people with oil many times in my ministry, and it is interesting when you anoint their their forehead. Usually, where I anoint people with oil, it kind of remains there, right, after after the prayer. And I think it is a kind of uh, a symbol a, a symbol of that abiding presence. That yeah, I think that's that's par- certainly part of this, the practical thing that oil conveys. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say that the use of oil, it's certainly not a sacrament in the way that baptism or Lord's Supper is, but when it's used this way, oil has a sacramental aspect to it. It is a sign, at least, of something else, something spiritual, something um, that is that is deeper. I think one of the really interesting things when you think about oil and prayer is if you look back in the Old Testament, um, <clears throat> think about 1 Samuel 16, right? 1 Samuel 16 is the story of how um, Samuel comes and does what to David? He anoints him, right? Um, so Saul has been rejected as king over Israel. Um, the Lord tells um, Samuel to go um, to Bethlehem, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel does it, and he, of course, we know the story. He reviews all the sons of Jesse, and none of them are adequate according to the Lord, and finally the youngest is brought before him. Um, now he, that is David, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome when Samuel saw him. And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him. For this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward. A couple things here to think about when we think about anointing. One is, um, what is the, the word Christ, of course, is the, uh, the Greek form of a Hebrew word. Um, what is the Hebrew word and what does it mean? Which, which means Messiah, which means literally anointed, right? The Christ is literally the anointed one, the one who is anointed. Um, we see back in the Old Testament the, the prototype for the Messiah, um, so to speak, David, the very first thing that he experienced as a sign of his, um, the way in which he would be the prototype of the Messiah is that he was anointed uh, with oil. Uh, he was anointed with oil and the Spirit came upon him, um, even as he was anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel. Um, I think that's a really fascinating thing when we think about as Christians, when we are anointed with oil. I think a couple things are happening. I think one thing that is happening is that um, we believe, um, we read elsewhere in the New Testament, that it is in our sufferings that we are particularly experience our union with Christ in a practical way. Um, Paul says, I want to know 
Christ's sufferings, right, in Philippians 3, um, so that I may know the power of his resurrection. Um, there's something, you know, that Paul says also in Colossians, that I fill up in my body what is lacking, the afflictions of Christ, that, that somehow he sees his own suffering in his present day as part of the sufferings of Jesus, an extension of the sufferings of Christ. Um, you see this all throughout the New Testament. That it's, it, of course, union with Christ is the theme of the New Testament, but even in, in a really particular way, union with Christ in the context of suffering um, is, a, is a really predominant theme, that somehow it is in our suffering that we particularly identify with Jesus and learn the pattern of his life, learn to depend upon the Lord in the way that he did. Um, suffering becomes for the Christian a gift, um, not an obstacle to the spiritual life, um, because it is in our sufferings that we really come to know Jesus in a particular way, in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. And I think the connection here, one of the connections is um, that, that when we are anointed with oil on our foreheads as the elders come and pray for us, we are, we are ourselves being put into the Christ, right? The Christ is the anointed one. We are anointed with him. We are set apart with him for this vocation. Just as David was set apart, just as Jesus himself was set apart at his baptism, um, the anointing is a sealing um, spiritually of us into the life of Jesus, even in our suffering. Does that make sense? Um, I, think, I think it's a really interesting way to think about uh, the use of oil, the reason for the anointing at all, realizing that Jesus is the anointed one. And when we are anointed, we are hiding ourselves in him. Uh, we are doing. We talk about every Sunday when we says when we say that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, our lives are being hidden with Him, in a in a kind of not, again not a sacrament but in a sacramental way, in a way that is signed to us, um, in a physical and tangible way that we can perceive with our senses. Um, yes, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. I think the anointing is more focused on the suffering itself. And I think there is an interesting connection between baptism and anointing. Um, I think in some ways anointing is a, is, a, is a reaffirmation of the baptism, right? Baptism is, we believe, the fundamental sacrament that is given to us uh, regarding our union with Christ. We can be confident that our life and Jesus' life are intertwined with one another because that's been signed and sealed to us in baptism. I think there is an interesting connection there between anointing with oil and the waters of baptism. Yeah. So in some ways it's a way of being baptized into Christ's death in a new way. And in this particular situation that you form of suffering that you find yourself in. Yeah. Yeah, literally in the next like paragraph, Saul is trying to kill him, right? Saul is throwing a spear at him. Trying, and at this point, Saul doesn't, he's kind of out of his mind. He's not doing so with intention and purpose um, to kill David specifically. But yeah, that's a great point that immediately um, Saul is trying to kill David. The next chapter, he's having to fight Goliath. Um, you know, then very soon after that, Saul is trying to kill him for real, um,
Yeah, and that's, I think that's right. And that's another thing that we see here in uh, 1 Samuel 16, is the connection between being the anointed one, being, being um, uh, sealed into the life of the Christ, the Messiah, and the coming of the Spirit, right? That the Spirit indwells you. And so I'd say the Spirit is not only, a, I mean, sorry, the oil, anointing with oil is not only the sign of um, the, our tangible identification with Jesus and his life, um, his suffering, his present life at the right hand of God, his resurrection. It is also a tangible sign and seal in some sense of the Spirit and the Spirit's presence with us, uh, that the Spirit indwells us. And of course, what is the great role of the Spirit? The great role of the Spirit is to unite us to Christ. That is what the Spirit does. And that's the primary thing the Spirit does, and we believe um, that he is the one that brings us, that affects this union between us and Jesus, because of course we know that Jesus' resurrected body occupies space and time at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is not near us in terms of space, um, and yet we are united to him. How can this great mystery take place? You know, John Calvin tells us again and again, it's by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who unites things that are separated by great distance. This is what he does. This is the miraculous work of the Spirit, is to unite us to the one who is far away. And when we're anointed with oil, the Spirit is symbolized to us. It is, we're assured of its presence um, with us that we are suffering not in some you know, random way, right? Not by chance, uh, not because of whatever, but because of our union with Jesus, that we're, we're suffering with him. That's one I propose. What do you guys think about that? Any questions? It's a great question. Great question. No, I've never. Yeah, sorry. So um, Alyssa just asked if we anoint people when they are going off for some task, um, you know, going to college or doing a mission trip or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, we would not anoint people with oil in that circumstance. We would probably lay hands on them um, and sort of commission them. That's something you see in the book of Acts, right? That uh, when Paul and Barnabas are going to go on a missionary journey, um, the elders come around them and, and lay hands on them and pray for them to send them off. Um, so I think, I think that's probably what we would do in that scenario. Um, yeah, but anointing with oil, um, and this is something I've done dozens of times in my ministry. It's something, it's something you should know um, that our church does for folks um, um, who are experiencing physical sickness and suffering, but also people who are um, experiencing other forms of suffering, right? Um, physical you know, a fever or whatever is not the only circumstance in which we'd anoint somebody. Um, someone who is experiencing deep grief, um, we would anoint with oil. Um, someone who is, is experiencing, um, you know, whatever that sickness may be. I think it's, it's, the point is that it doesn't have to be, you know, a virus or something that, that why you're being anointed with oil. Um, but I think it is a really powerful and tangible way in which the church can care um, for those who need healing. And really, um, that's all of us in some extent, right? All of us need to be healed. Um, Jesus is, of course, the great physician, the great healer, right? That is what he does. Um, certainly one of the primary things he does is bring healing um, to those whom he loves. And I, I really do think this is an important pastoral practice, um, and it's something that's always available to you um, if you if you want it. Um, so so don't don't hesitate to let me know if that's something that you would you would like.
Um, it's something that we do uh, pretty regularly um, here at our church. And usually privately, and you know, people don't see it or notice it, but it's, it's something that happens um, with some frequency. And I think it's a really helpful thing. It's a really you know, good way um, for us to, to make pr- prayer a concrete um, practice and, and, and help people uh, reframe their, their own suffering. Um, and to realize that they're suffering. I mean, one of the great dangers of suffering, right, is that it isolates you, right? There's hardly anything in your life that is so isolating as grief or suffering. Um, you feel like you're totally alone. And so when, when people are able to go to myself and to the elders and, and to say, I want to be prayed for in my suffering, um, for healing, um, there's an opportunity to, to, to realize that you're not alone, right? You, you have the church which cares for you, um, and sees you in your suffering and dignifies it um, with concern. And more important than that, Jesus is with you in your suffering, that you are being pressed into the life of the anointed one, into the Christ, into the Messiah, that his spirit is indwelling with you. Um, The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead also dwells in you in the context of your suffering. Yes, Kim, and then Sylvia. I think so. Yeah, I think it's a merciful thing that God gives us. Again, I want to be clear, I'm not calling anointing with oil a sacrament, the same way that baptism and Lord's Supper are. I don't think they were ordained and administered by Jesus in the same ways. But I do think it's an important practice. It's an important thing um, that, that is given to us as a way in which we can be confident of God's presence with us. I mean, fundamentally, I think that's what it's, it's about by anointing with oils, is, is having a tangible sign from your Christian, uh, from the church, right? not only from in some invisible way, but in a tangible way from the church that God is with you in your suffering, that he sees it and that he will raise you up. He will heal you. I think that promise that James gives here is really striking, right? Um, he says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. The way that I interpret that is that um, this speaks to sometimes, and we have seen this, I have seen this, when people have been anointed with oil and prayed for, um, that they have been healed, that the Lord has seen fit to bring healing into their life um, and to answer the prayer. I've also prayed for people, um, and probably, well, I don't know, I don't know, what the, I don't know what the, you know, which is more frequent. But I've also prayed for people where the Lord has not answered the prayer, right? The thing that we've prayed for has not come true. Um, the person has been close to death and they have died. Um, even though we anointed them with oil, even though we prayed with faith, all these things. So what is, what is the meaning of this promise here? I think the meaning is the Lord will raise him up. I think that phraseology is really important um, because I think James here is pointing not only to immediate healing that the Lord may or may not bring, but to the ultimate healing that he absolutely will bring. And that is in the resurrection of the body from the dead. And in some sense, when we anoint those who are sick with oil, we are consecrating them for death. We're consecrating them for death. We're saying, even in death, whatever comes, whatever form this suffering takes, 
We are trusting that the Lord will indeed be faithful to his promise and raise you up on the last day and give you healing. I think Jeff and then Bonnie. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I never thought of that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Certainly there was a there was an assumption often that if you sinned or if you suffered, it was because you had sinned in some particular concrete way that it, that had brought it upon you. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I, I think what I would say, Jeff, is that I, I don't, I mean, we've, you know, I don't think that, I mean, certainly we can say broadly that all suffering, all sickness is generally a result of sin, right? Because we live in a world that is marred by sin. Um, I don't think that, that we should say in our lives there are, you know, the Lord is directly punishing me with this kind of suffering because of this sin. Um, sometimes the Lord lets us experience the consequences of our sins, and so we could you know, say in that circumstance, right? If I embezzle a bunch of money for 10 years for my job, for my workplace, and then I get fired and put in prison, well, the Lord brought that on me because I embezzled that money, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty clear um, connection. Um, but generally speaking, I don't think, so I, I think you're right that, that there is, and this is one of the dangers of, of, of suffering as well, right? I think we know that you, you can go to this place where you say, well, what have I done? Right? What have I done to bring this upon me? You can isolate yourself because of that. There can be a, you know, it's interesting, it's sad, it's heartbreaking um, as a pastor that often the people who struggle the most with shame are people who are suffering, right? That somehow there's this connection, it almost seems intrinsic or intuitive for human beings that when we suffer, we're ashamed and we want to hide. Um, and I think this, what James is doing here is giving concrete ways to bring that person back into fellowship. So I totally agree with you on that point. By anointing them with oil, by surrounding them with Christian uh, brothers and elders, leaders in the church, um, by giving them a way to confess any sin that is unconfessed and be encouraged um, and, and, and have that forgiveness communicated to them in a, in a declarative way. I think all these things are ways to, to bring that person back into the fellowship of the body. Yeah, in a way that suffering threatens to isolate us. Bonnie, did you have a question or a comment? Right. Right. Sure. Is that 
-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say it's part of the significance. Um, I think that the Lord always, it seems to me in the scriptures, I mean, even think about the story about Naaman's baptism. Um, sorry, I just gave away what I was going to say. So when Naaman is, goes into the Jordan River um, and, and washes himself, I think that's a clear picture of the kind of washing that the Lord brings in baptism. Um, just as, uh, you know, as we're told um, in the New Testament, um, the crossing through the Red Sea is a, is a picture of, that bap- is of baptism. Uh, Noah um, being closed in the ark and being uh, lifted up above the floods is a picture of baptism. So I think that, I think it's both. I think you're right that with Naaman, obviously there was a humility to accept the Lord's um, word and to, to humble himself, um, even to, to baptize in Jordan itself. Uh, to be, or to wash in Jordan itself rather than one of the other rivers. Um, but, but I do think there's also, it doesn't preclude a symbolic um, connection that's important for us to see. I think the Lord often works through visible symbols uh, and, and, you know, in, in sacramental ways, that all of the scripture is in some sense um, sacramental in the way that it talks about uh, the ways of God in the world. Um, so I don't know that I would agree with you that, that the obedience is the primary thing, but it is certainly part of it. Certainly part of what James is saying here is trust the Lord, trust in this really common thing, element like oil. Um, you know, not trust in the oil, but trust in this in the, my word and, and that is telling you this practice um, that I will work through it. And he does a very similar thing, right, with water and with bread and with wine. Now, these are all very common elements that are set apart and then used by the Spirit um, to sign and seal Christ himself to us, uh, we believe. And I think, you know, in a limited, lesser sense, oil is functioning in a similar way here. And even in the context, the historical context of seeing right. the Elisha story, it shouldn't surprise us that there's all of these miraculous things happening through the raising. I mean, this is the context that he's grabbing, he's pulling us into. Yeah. Right. He, God, Lord uses means to care for people. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, so Todd is talking about the connection with Elijah here. Elijah was a man who, with a nature like ours, he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He's talking about how the Lord, of course, Elijah is one of the prototypical suffering prophets of the Old Testament. And as Todd is pointing out, again and again, the Lord uses concrete means to deliver Elijah. Uh, when he is hungry and alone in the, in, the, in the valley, the Lord brings ravens who bring food to him that he eats, um, that he brings him into contact with yeah, a Gentile widow, um, and together she has a little bit of oil left, and they, you know, it, it works out that he can be, he can be uh, uh, have enough to eat. Um, so the Lord doesn't work immediately, in Elijah's life, but it is his his care for Elijah is mediated through visible, tangible means, and I think that's part. Yeah, it's a good connection to what the Lord is saying here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It is. 
yeah, yeah, the logic connection is very striking because of that. Yeah. Sylvia, did you have your hand? Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. Did I forget to come back to you? I apologize. What was your question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. That's great. That's wonderful. It's a great testimony. I'm glad to hear that. That's cool. Well, I, mean, I should talk to you more about that. I, that was before I got here, so I'd like to hear that story more. That's great. Yeah, one more question, we got to wrap up. Absolutely, yeah. So, so I think that this is one. It's certainly one of the main, main, major themes of of the book, Epistle of James. That's right. Is this, this emphasis on community, right? This emphasis on being drawn into the community as the way in which uh, we will faithfully and do the things that James is talking about. And you see this. We'll conclude with this, my brothers. The last verses of James. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How does James envision any of us being brought back to the Lord if we wander away? By means, right? By means of a brother, by means of someone else. Caring for us, shepherding us, coming back to us. This is a great picture of church discipline, which I know is a scary thing to hear sometimes, but this is... One of the main points of church discipline is to bring someone back who's wandering from the truth, that we need that community. We need um, one another if we're going to do what James talks about here um, in this epistle. So that's a good place to close, I think. Um, good. Well, thanks, you all, for studying James with me together. I hope it's been helpful. I know it has been for me to go through God's word with you um, week by week. Let's stand and pray. Father, so grateful for your word. We're thankful for James and for this epistle and for um, the, the lessons, the mysteries that it contains. Uh, Father, we know that we've only begun to scratch the surface in many ways of what um, this part of your scripture uh, means and, and uh, will do in our lives if we permit it. And so I pray that you would help us to not be those who simply um, briefly study God's word and put it away in a corner somewhere, but we would be those who, who practice it who do it, even as James instructs us, um, who obey it, um, who put it into our lives, who meditate upon it, um, who hide it in our hearts, um, who show forth what it requires in obedience um, to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.